Father, thanks that you are a good God. That through the life, death, and resurrection of your son Jesus, you give us the opportunity to receive mercy, as we just sang about. That you remove our sins as far as the east is from the west. Thanks for your goodness and kindness towards us. Would you speak to us this morning, God, as we look at your word? Would you give us eyes to see it, ears to hear it, hearts to be transformed into the likeness of your son? Thanks for the opportunity to gather. We don't want to take it for granted. And we love you and we thank you. Would you be with us this morning? We ask it in your name. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Uh, If you could pray for me. Uh, Yesterday, I started feeling dizzy. I've had vertigo every now and again. And so I feel okay right now. But if I have to sit down at some point... um, And it's like, I don't know if I have an inner ear thing, like I can't turn left. If I turn left, I start, so you might be neglected. I'm going to turn this way instead of turning my, um, but if you could just pray, and in case I sit down, that's that's the reason why. I feel okay this morning, Um, but yeah, be aware of that. Uh, My name is John. I'm I'm thankful to be here. My wife and I were gone last week. We were in Florida. We uh, work for Family Life from time to time. That's a a ministry and organization that ministers to family. And we work specifically um, with a group called Weekend to Remember, which is a marriage conference. We do about four of those a year in different places. And we got to go to Florida and it was just beautiful. And we get to teach side by side to these couples of how does the gospel actually um, affect your marriage? What does that actually look like? It's a weekend deal. And so we love doing that. But I always miss you guys when we're gone, so I'm, I'm super thankful to be here, thankful to be with you guys. Uh, if you have a Bible, open it up to Revelation. If it's not already there, we are walking through uh, the book of Revelation. We are in week eight of a 12-week series as we're taking kind of chunks of the book of Revelation and kind of walking out, what does this book mean for us today? This is a complicated book. Many of us kind of avoid it. It's at the back of our Bible. It has strange symbolic language in it that's interpreted a, a variety of diff- different ways uh, with people. And so we've said this, and we'll continue to say this, just to give us some guardrails to understand what we're reading, because again, it's apocalyptic uh, language and a genre where the original readers, these seven churches in what was uh, Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey, which was written to, they would understand the language because it was written in the Old Testament apocalyptic language. He's pulling from books like Daniel and Joel and Ezekiel that would have made sense to the hearers of the original letter, and he's pulling from the Roman culture, which both of those we're not really versed in. And so we have to do some translation and understanding what is actually John saying and trying to communicate to the churches. And so we've been using this. It's not the only purpose, but it seems to be helpful for us as we're walking through the entire book. It's this, that the purpose of Revelation is to disciple Christians to be discerning, dissonant worshipers and witnesses of Jesus. That as we learn to follow Jesus, we would be discerning in a culture that doesn't follow Jesus, just like the churches were under this Roman culture that was not following in the way of Jesus. We'd be discerning of that, and then we would be dissident against that. We wouldn't fall prey to doing the things that the culture is doing, that that we would push against and go, no, we're going to actually walk in the way of Jesus. And because of that, that would cause us to be worshipers, giving our whole life to the way of Jesus, and it would also cause us to be witnesses to share about Jesus with others. 
Uh, let's do a quick review just to catch us up to speed if you're new here or you just need reminders of where we've been in the text and the stories. We're going to uh, unpack chapter 14, the majority of chapter 14 this morning. Chapter 1, we saw this vision of Jesus, this beautiful vision of Jesus and that he reigns over all things. And it was written specifically to Christians that were suffering. They were under Roman persecution. Their friends and family, they were dying for their faith, literally dying. And this vision of Jesus is bigger than the Roman culture that they're in. And then in chapters 2 and 3, there's a specific address from Jesus to these seven churches and saying, I see what you're doing and there's some things that you're doing that are good, but there's lots of things you need to turn from. You've allowed this culture to seep into your worship and the way you live and the way you do life and you have to turn from those things back to me. We saw that in chapters 2 and 3. And then John gets behind the curtain in chapter 4 and 5, and he sees the throne room of God, this picture where everything and everyone is centered around God. And he sees that there's this scroll that can unlock the mysteries of life, but it's sealed up. And he sees that no one is worthy to open the scroll until he hears that there's a lion of Judah. And he turns and he sees a slain lamb representing Jesus that can unlock the scroll that is worthy to open the scroll and as that scroll gets open we saw in chapter 6 and 77 seals that represents God's goodness in his judgment on a wicked world that God is good and he's righteous and because of that goodness and righteousness he is going to end evil one day and in the midst of the evil being ended in this judgment, we see in chapters 6 and 7, and really in chapters 8 through 11 in these seven trumpets, that God's people that are covered by the blood of the Lamb, they're protected in the midst of that ultimate judgment. And then we saw John turn the corner a couple of weeks ago in chapters 12, 13, and we're going to cover 14 this morning. And again, he gets behind the curtain again and sees this cosmic battle in chapter 12 of this enemy, Satan, this dragon that seeks to steal and kill and destroy and operates in manipulation and half-truths and accusations on God's people. And that there is a cosmic battle that starts in Genesis 3 and still goes on until Jesus finally returns again to put an end finally, which we'll see in the text later on. And so there's this cosmic battle in chapter 12, and then Charles unpacked well for us last week, Charles, uh, chapter 13. Not only is there a cosmic battle, but there's an earthly battle. The dragon, Satan, gives power and authority to these two beasts that come and roam, and we see this, this first beast is, is not subtle at all. It deals with power and pride and, and manipulation. And then the second beast is way more subtle, it looks like a lamb, but it speaks like a dragon, the text says. So it kind of looks like Jesus, but actually it's nothing like Jesus. And it's subtle in its manipulation. And then what we're going to see in chapter 14 this morning is really the application for God's people. As Trevor read, the endurance for the saints. This is something that if you have followed Jesus, if you've given your life to him, you're covered by the blood of the lamb. What does it look like to stay engaged in the midst of this cosmic battle? for us? What does it look like to endure that we do have an enemy right now until Jesus comes back and makes all things right and makes all things new? How do we endure in the midst of our world and in this battle? When I was thinking about the, the text in chapter 13 and the, and the two beasts, I thought about um, my time on the water. Right, So we used to go uh, every summer with our old job, we'd go up to Colorado, and part of our work is we would get to go whitewater rafting. How many people have been whitewater rafting in here? Right, A number of 
It's super fun. You get on the raft, and whether it's class three or four or five, man, those rapids take you on the surface, and there's a current that just moves the raft, and it's so fun and exciting. It's exhilarating. And the first beast in chapter 13 kind of operates that way. There's no bones about it. It's about power. It's about control. It's about the things that our world would go, this is what you go after if you're not a follower of Jesus. But then this second beast is less like the rapids on the surface and the current on the surface, and it's way more like the lazy river. There's an undercurrent that's sneaky that we don't see on the surface. Have you ever been tubing down the Salt River or at, at the Carolyn in Scottsdale, they have that long, lazy river. If you've been to that resort, we were there a couple of months ago, and man, I just love that thing. We could, I could sit in a tube just for days and go by, and it's just so relaxing, right? And you're just going, oh, this is so great. But then do you know when you want to get out, whether it's at the Salt River or at a lazy river, and you think, oh, this is no problem. I'm going to stand up. It's barely moving me. And then you stand up. If you don't start paddling towards the exit early, what happens when you stand up? The current underneath, the undercurrent is super strong. It's not on the surface, but below. It'll just move you wherever it wants you to go. And so the same thing is true with this second beast, that there's this undercurrent that's sneaky for us, even as Christians, and we go like, okay, what does it mean to actually, if we're saved by grace, it's all Jesus, but then what does it mean to fight this battle where there's a sneaky undercurrent that wants us to sin and not follow the way of Jesus? That's what chapter 14 is going to give us. If chapter 12 is exposing this cosmic battle, chapter 13 is talking about this earthly battle, chapter 14 is like, Okay, Christian, here's how you fight in the midst of this battle that you're in. So that's where we're going to go. And if you're taking notes, what chapter 14 is going to give us, it's going to give us three areas. I'm not going to cover the last section today. We'll cover that actually next week, verses 14 through the end of the chapter, because that really is kind of a hinge um, starting for chapter 15 and 16. So we're just going to look at the first 13 verses of chapter 14 this morning, and this is what we're going to see. How do you withstand the undercurrent of the enemy. That's kind of the big idea that we're going to cover in these uh, verses here. How do you withstand the undercurrent of the enemy? And three things that the text will give us this morning is that you stand in worship of the Lamb, you sit under the preaching of the gospel, and then the third, you walk in obedience and faith in Jesus. Now, these might sound really simple if you're a follower of Jesus or if you've been around a church for a while. But again, we don't give enough weight to the undercurrent of the battle we're in. And just like when you stand up trying to get out of a lazy river and you get swept into a direction, some of us are in situations where we've been following Jesus, but we don't think we really have an enemy. We can, we can kind of just lean back and just relax, and then our lives get soon out of whack really quickly. And so how do we, under the power of the Spirit, under what Jesus has done for us, fight this battle that we find ourselves in. So let's look at the text, um, chapter 14 of Revelation. I'm going to read one, uh, verses 1 through 13. I'll give some commentary on it just to kind of bridge the gap of some of the symbolic imagery that John is going to use. We saw in chapter 12, he says, man, this is about symbols. And so we're not taking these things literally. We're going like, what does this mean? What does it point to? And then we'll look at those three things and unpack them for us today. So this is Revelation chapter 14, starting in verse 1. It says this, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood a lamb, 
And with him, uh, 144,000 who had the name and his father's name written on their foreheads. We saw this number earlier in the text, and it's a representation. It's not a literal number. It's representing God's people, that there's lots of God's people in the midst of who he has covered. And we also see that this first verse is direct uh, contrast to what we saw at the end of uh, chapter 13 when it's talking about this beast and it's talking about the mark of the beast is uh, human and it's 666. This is direct contrast to that. The people that have been covered by the blood of the lamb, um, their name is on their foreheads. Again, not literally, but figuratively. Verse two, and I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing uh, their, on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne of God, before the four living creatures, and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And these have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits of God and the Lamb, and their mouth, uh, in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Verses 4 and 5 just need some attention for us, because we read that and we go, I, what does that mean, <laughs> right? Um, but for, the, again, the current uh, reader of the culture, they would understand, and the commentators and scholars usually say, man, it's probably one of two things. One, if you look in the Old Testament, that when uh, men were going to go to war, they would separate themselves from their wives so that they were focused on what they were doing, focused on the fight. That's one interpretation. I think the better interpretation is that throughout the Bible, you see this metaphor or this picture of God as the groom and the church, his people, as the bride. And time and time again, it talks about how we are unfaithful to God. We don't hold to the first commandment that that you shall love God and have no idols before me. No, we don't do that. We kind of veer away and we're not faithful in our relationship with God. And it's saying that these people are actually faithful, that the army is faithful in the midst of their pursuit of God. Verse 6, let's keep going. It says, then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Again, verse 8, Babylon, which we've talked about, uh, they're not talking specifically about the nation of Babylon. They're actually talking, John's talking about Rome. Babylon is a trope, it's an archetype to say, man, these kingdoms that are all about power and doing uh, for themselves the good and not following Jesus, that, that is the idea of Babylon. And not only will Rome fall, but then you'll have somebody else that will rise up and do the same thing. And eventually they will fall. If you're familiar with Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, that's where we get Babylon. They're building something for themselves. And God's not going to have that for a long term. And so Babylon falls. Verse 9, and another angel, a third, followed them, 
saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives the mark on his forehead or his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of uh, the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And then the smoke and their torment goes up forever and ever, and they will have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Verse 12, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. In the midst of these 13 verses, what does it look like for you and I, those of us that follow Jesus, to have perseverance in the midst of persecution? What does it look like for you that if you're in a situation and it feels like Babylon, the world, the people that you're around that don't follow Jesus, man, they keep winning. You're trying to do the right thing at work, but somebody that's not trying to do the right thing happens to win constantly, and you're going, Lord, what is the deal? How do you have endurance to continue to follow Jesus in the right way? What does that look like to withstand the undercurrent of the enemy where you want to just give up and just go, okay, I'm just going to do what everybody else is doing because that seems to be working for those people. And Jesus is going, don't do that. I want you to endure. I want you to keep following me even in the midst of your persecution, even in the midst of your circumstances aren't working well. Follow me. It will be worth it. What does that look like for us? The first thing we see in the first five verses is this, that you would stand in the worship of the Lamb. You'd stand in the worship of the Lamb. Verse 1, what are they doing in verse 1? They're standing, and then what are they doing in verse 3? They're singing. They're standing, and they're singing. What worship does for our hearts and our minds is that worship aligns our hearts to whose army we are in. Whose battle, in the midst of this battle, whose side are we on? When we come into this room on a Sunday and we sing the truths that we sing, it's aligning our hearts because then when we walk out of that room, we have a strong undercurrent of people going like, that's not true. You're worshiping and singing about Jesus. Why would you do that? That's not really true. And so we come into this space, we stand and we sing and we worship the true lamb, the one that gave his life for us. Eugene Peterson says it this way. I like this language. He says, worship is the act in which our misunderstood and misspoken words are corrected and arranged into an expression of the whole truth of ourselves and God. That's what we do when we come in this room. We align ourselves to the truth of scripture. We align ourselves to the truth of who the lamb is and what he has done for us because we walk out of those rooms and you're not going to get that in other spaces. The world and the undercurrent is sneaky and it's going to tell you the opposite thing. And so we need to come in this room and we need to remind ourselves and align ourselves with the truth of the Bible and the truth of the story of Jesus to remember that that's true. Because I don't know about you, but I forget it real quick when I leave. Man, and I just want to follow the undercurrent of what seems to be working for other people. And this is an opportunity for us to go, no, we stand in the worship of the Lamb. This is what this means. Not only on Sunday mornings together, but collectively, but also individually. 
Are you spending time worshiping God with your headphones on in your car? It does something to your mind. It does something to your heart. And it's one of the ways we withstand that strong undercurrent that sometimes we don't realize is there. What does your rhythm of worship look like? If it's only coming in here and singing on Sunday for the short amount that we do, I would go, man, you are going to get swept up by that undercurrent fairly quickly. We need to have good rhythms of worship, not just in our singing, but in our life. That worship is ascribing ourselves to what's true. It's giving our worth to what we believe in, what we bow our knee to. And so we need to be centered on worshiping the Lamb. That's the first thing, stand in the worship of the Lamb. The second thing we see as we drop down in the text is to sit under the preaching of the gospel. Stand in the worship of the Lamb. Sit under the preaching of the gospel. Verse 6, we see these angels, and what are they doing? They're um, proclaiming an eternal gospel to the people. And if worship is the thing that aligns our heart to whose army we are in, preaching and sitting under it is the alarm to wake us up to whose army we're in. I have the opportunity to, to teach a class at Grand Canyon University in the College of Theology. It's a lab. It's, it's for students that want to go into ministry at some level. And right now, we're in a section about preaching and teaching and the difference between of preaching and teaching. And the difference between preaching and teaching is we look at the scriptures and we see this language of proclamation where John the Baptist comes onto the scene in the Gospels and he's proclaiming the kingdom is here. When Jesus comes on, he's proclaiming that word preaching. What that means is there's something that has to be known. It's an announcement, but it's not just an announcement. It's an announcement with urgency. If somebody's in the back running the slides, who's in the back today? Maybe Ryan? No, Ryan? No, Ryan's over there. I don't know who's. Somebody's in the back back there pressing the buttons, which I'm super thankful for. But if somehow smoke started coming out in that back room and there was a fire and they walked out here, there was a fire and they just walked out and say, everybody, I want to let you know that there's smoke protruding. Usually when there's smoke, there's fire. We should all exit calmly. They're teaching us what's true. That's not preaching. That's not proclaiming. But if they came out because there was a fire and there's danger for us to stay still, they would come out. There's a fire. We need to exit right away because there's potential harm for us. And that's what preaching is. As we look at God's word, it should wake us up to go, no, we can't live our normal lives. We have to realize we need to sacrifice ourselves to Jesus because we're going to forget the rest of the week. And this idea of proclaiming and sitting under the preaching of God's word is necessary for our hearts. Otherwise, we're going to be swept up in this undercurrent. And then we're going to be frustrated and go, how did I get over here? It's because we're not worshiping. We're not standing and worshiping, focusing on the lamb, and we're not sitting under the preaching of the gospel. The reason we come in this room, the reason we gather is not to feel good about ourselves and to go like, oh, wow, I went to church. I can check the moral box. The reason we come into this space during preaching is to go, I need to align my heart. I need an alarm to wake me up to what's true because we just forget and we fall asleep and we get swept up in this undercurrent. So what specifically does this preaching do? And again, this is Peterson again. I like this language. When he talks about the need for preaching and sitting under the preaching of the gospel, he says this, this many 
dimensioned, world-making, salvation-shaping, reality-orienting word of God is always under the threat of being silenced or muffled. It is silenced by choosing the book in which it's written. It is silenced by the sound of fury of the daily traffic. It is silenced by the sound of buzzing ambition and our covetousness of our own brains. Preaching gives the silent word sound again making it resonate in our ears so that we, that we deal with God, not as a memory, but as an inner, uh, immediate and personally spoken to us. This is what preaching ought to do. And sometimes you go, ah, I don't really want to go to church. Ah, like, like, man, we need to hear the gospel preached. It doesn't need to be at this church, just at a church. You need to hear God's word preached to you because then it's alarm to go like, oh, wow. I've been kind of living and letting the current just take me this week. I need to be reminded what it looks like to get in line with Jesus. So what do these three angels say to us specifically? What are they saying to the churches? What does John see? Verse 7, we see this first angel say, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of the water. What's the alarm to wake up the church and to wake us up with that statement this first angel is giving? The undercurrent of the enemy would say, man, there's really not going to be judgment. That's silly. There's really a God that's going to judge us for what we do? That with the world and, and the undercurrent of the enemy would go, like, you don't need to worry about that. Do whatever you want to do. You can worship whatever you want to worship. And the alarm of this preaching is going, no, you got to worship the creator, not the creation. Right? Again, we look around and we see our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers, man, they seem to be winning at life. They have a bigger bank account. They've got a spouse. They've got kids. They've got things we don't have. And we're asking God for those things. And, and they're not walking in the way of the lamb. And we kind of get frustrated and we go, maybe I'll just try it that way. And the preaching of the gospel goes, Keep following the lamb. There will be a judgment for people that are not walking with Jesus. It will come. The second angel, as we look at verse 8 down in your Bible, he proclaims, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She was made all nations drink of the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. The undercurrent of the enemy in this statement that the second angel is combating with the proclamation of the gospel is this lie, that Babylon isn't going to fall. Like, they're going to keep winning. Like, pay attention to those things. Like, you need to start doing those things if you actually want to get ahead in life. Babylon's not going to fall. Right? And if it's Babylon, somebody else will be raised up, and you need to get in line. Like, that's how you win at life. Pay attention to those things. But there's going, actually, no, Babylon the Great is going to fall. Not only did Rome fall in its day in the book of Revelation, but somebody else will be raised up. And you know what? Somebody else will fall. And even in this context, it's going, man, the ones that follow those beasts, the ones that follow Babylon, the ones that get swept up in the undercurrents, they drink the wine of passion, of her sexual immorality. Kind of going like, you can do whatever you want, whatever feels good to you. And this proclamation of preaching goes, no. Don't drink that wine. Don't pay attention to that. Pay attention to what I'm asking you to do. Then the third angel, verses 9 through 11, says, If anybody worships the beast in its image and receives the mark on its forehead and on its hand, 
He will also drink of the wine of God's wrath, poured in full strength of the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark under his name. The undercurrent of the enemy there just says, follow the trends of the world. I was watching uh, the, the Arizona Wildcats, who won last night, by the way, if you didn't stay up for the rest of the game, I didn't, but they ended up beating Oregon State, and the Dimebacks won. That's a good day. Good day in sports yesterday. Um, but there's a commercial that came on that is for a casino and uh, here, here in the Valley, and their kind of, their tag is like, you do you. I don't know if you've seen that line on billboards or even in the commercials, and that's kind of the idea. It's like, you just do you. Do whatever you want. Do whatever feels good to you. You should do that. And what the preaching of this third angel is going like, no, if you do that, you're going to drink the cup of wrath of God, and it will not go well for you. You might think it goes well now, but ultimately, if you drink those cups, if you've ever been in that situation where you go, I'm not going to walk with God, I'm going to do whatever I feel good about doing, it never ends up well in the long run for you anyway, even in this life. And even in the text, it's like, you're not going to have rest. You won't have rest if you follow the way of the beast. You won't. You will feel insecure. You'll feel frustrated. You won't feel fulfilled. You might feel fulfilled for just a second. That's what sin does. It's just for a moment. But then at the end of the day, you're going, this can't be it. And that's what this angel is saying. It's like, don't do that. Don't worship the beast. Don't worship the image. And again, Charles talked last week about that image of 666, human, human, human. On the sixth day of creation, God created humans. And that idea of 666 is just worshiping myself, worshiping human, 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 666, instead of worshiping the true God, 777, holy, holy, holy. And for us, we all default to the 666. Charles talked about that last night, it's, or, or last week. It's the original sin. It's we all walk into this thing with imperfection and separation from God. And only until we're covered by the blood of Jesus can we be changed. There's a judgment coming, and we need to be reminded of that. So in this idea of the second point of sitting under the preaching of the gospel, the question for us is, what does our rhythm look like of sitting under the proclamation of the gospel? Again, Peterson says that when we sit under the preaching of the gospel, it translates moral memories into spiritual urgencies. Moral memories, maybe you know about God, yeah, I believe God, but like when you sit under the preaching, it starts to become a spiritual urgency. And you go, okay, I need to get back in alignment. I need to repent what these churches are being called to do in chapters two and three. Turn back, repent of the ways that you've been living. That's what the preaching of the gospel does in and through us, is the Spirit uses God's word to convict and to change us. In the midst of that, we change. So again, how do we withstand the undercurrent of the enemy? Number one, we stand in the worship of the Lamb. Number two, we sit under the preaching of the gospel. And the third and last one, we walk in obedience and faith in Jesus. Verse 12 says, to keep the commandments of God and faith in Jesus. This is the call for the saints. Obedience and faith is the action defined by whose army we were in, who we belong to. 
as you stand in the worship of the Lamb and you sit under the preaching of the gospel, it ought to move us to obedience and faith in the person of Jesus. What does your rhythm of obedience and trust in Jesus look like? Because some of us, man, we, we, ju we just need somebody to come alongside us and go, stop doing that. I love you the way you're going. You're being swept up by that undercurrent. You don't even see it. You don't even recognize it. But I see what's going on in you, and it's going to lead to destruction. Your salvation is secure if you've trusted Jesus because it's all his work in your life. But what I see you doing in your actions and your behaviors, it's going to cripple you. And so what I want you to do is I want you to begin to obey. And that's why we need each other. In the midst of this conversation, in the midst of community, in the midst of persevering when we go, I'm just so tired. I feel like I want to give up today. And that's why you need your brother. That's why you need your sister in your life to come alongside you and go, no, it's worth it. And even look at the text, right? You don't get any rest if you're following the beast. You don't get any rest. But what's the promise that we see in verse 13? Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. But as you do your best to endure, by the power of the Spirit, in the midst of your community, as you stand in worship, and you realign your heart to the true King, who is the Lamb, and you sit under the preaching of the gospel, and it wakes you up to, man, I've been kind of just lazy this week. Not in the salvation, you're not working for your salvation, but just for your sanctification, just for your good of who you are. And you go, man, I've been kind of lazy this week. And the alarm of the gospel says, no, let's realign ourselves with what's true. And in the midst of that, what you do is you live holy, you obey him. And then when you fail, when you will fail, you stand in the worship, you sit under the preaching, and you have faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus for the endurance of the saints. It's not faith in yourself. It's not faith in your good words. It's not faith in how much you have sinned or you haven't sinned. It's faith in the only one that's actually solid is Jesus. And for those of us that are covered by the blood of the Lamb, we're not covered by our good works. We're not covered by standing in worship or sitting under the preaching. We're covered by Jesus' work, his life, death, and resurrection. As we exchange our life for his, we start to change. We need to be reminded of this. Because again, like some of us are just, man, we're, we're caught in that undercurrent. Maybe some of us are caught in the current, the first beast. Man, we're just tired of following Jesus and we're just going to do what we want to do and we're being swept up in those waves and that current is taking us to a place that sounds fun right now, but there's a waterfall on the end of the river and you're going to die. And then some of us are just caught unknowingly in the undercurrent. We're trying to stand up doing life and we don't realize and it's pushing us really, really drastically. And so as we walk with Jesus, those that have given our life to Jesus, we gotta go, okay, what does it look like to stand against that undercurrent? Because it's going to be with you forever until Jesus comes back. How we stand, again, we stand in the worship of the Lamb. We sit under the preaching of the gospel, and we walk towards the table in obedience and faith. That's why we take communion every single week. 
to remind ourselves that this is where we get our worth. This is where we get uh, even the ability to be obedient to the faith of of standing in in worship and, and sitting under the preaching is because the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so as we take a piece of bread and we dip it in the juice, we go, yep, this is where I get my worth not from those things, and it helps us fight that undercurrent that is so powerful, that's sneaky, and we don't often see. So we're going to do that this morning. In our response this morning, which we respond every week to, as the worship team comes back up, and we're going to sing in our response, in the midst of our singing, we're going to do what we just talked about doing. We're going to stand and we're going to sing in the midst of what is true to realign our hearts. Even if we don't believe it to be true, we're going to sing it and we're going to ask God to change us. In the midst of that singing, some of the other things that we're going to do, we want to give opportunity to pray. And so there's a prayer space to my right, your left. If you've never been in there, I would just invite you to go in and just spend some time quietly and asking God, man, where am I being caught up in the undercurrent that I don't even realize And God, I want to realign my heart with you because that's actually where true satisfaction is found. We just invite you to go in and pray. If you want to write something down on a card and put it on the wall, we'd love for you to do that just between you and the Lord. And then we're going to take communion in our response. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're covered in the blood of the Lamb, if you are a saint, which is who John is writing to in this moment in chapter 14, we would invite you to come down, remember where you get your worth. So you take a piece of bread, which is Christ's body given to you, And you dip it in the juice, which is blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins, and you take it, you would be reminded that that is how you endure. You endure based on Jesus' life and the faith you have in him. So let's pray, and we'll spend some time responding together. Father, would you be with us in our time of response this morning? God, would you by your spirit, convict us of the ways that we've been caught up in the undercurrent that's invisible and below the surface and that has just kind of swept us out of line with you. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the one that saves us. It's not our own efforts, but as you save us, you call us to walk in faith and obedience to your commandments. Would you help us do that this morning? God, as we spend time singing, as we spend time praying, as we spend time receiving Realign our hearts to realize what army we belong to. And Father, if there's men and women, boys and girls in this room right now that haven't made a decision for you, Jesus, I pray that they would make that decision, that they wouldn't follow in the way of the beast, but they would follow in the way of the lamb, and that you would save them. Thanks that we have the opportunity to realign our hearts and our minds to you this morning. We ask that you would change us in the midst of that process, in the midst of our response. We ask it in your name. Amen.